1: Welcome back to the Roker Report, our latest episode, episode 42. I believe we stand at now. Finds us after another defeat. Yeah, that's that's right. Nothing ever really changes with Sunderland, does it? On Saturday, we got beaten 2 1 by Sheffield United. It um, wasn't a fantastic performance, I think, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, first of all, I'm joined by Alex, Jimmy, Gav, and James. How are you lads doing? Not great. We've all been best, now everybody's feeling pretty shit right now, as you would. Some of it's because they drank themselves into a stupor last night, as I imagine most of the region did. Um, Others just because, yeah, it's terrible, terrible crack at Sunland. Nobody likes it. But I'll leave you with Jimmy at the moment. He can tell you about the game in a little more detail. Jimmy, what did you make of that game?
2: Well, I mean, it was as bad as anything last season. The one thing I've always said on this podcast was the championship should be a lot more fun because we'll create chances, we'll score goals will be competitive every week. And that was a return to the grim old days under Moyes. That was about as bad as anything last year. And the main feeling I have coming away from the game, sort of 24 hours on, is just that was so, so poor. We never looked like scoring again until our last-minute consolation goal. We didn't create anything. There was a real apathy among the players, and it was just a really, really poor game. I do think Robin Reuter's inability to, to do anything competent in goal hurt. The timing of the goals really killed us because Sheffield United weren't that much better. They were nothing special. They looked like a really rank average championship side. And when your goalkeeper's letting in every half chance he faces, it's really hard to get results. We saw that last season where you'd think we might be competitive, you'd think we might be getting to get a foothold in the game and then Gillibodgie would do something stupid or O'Shea would do something stupid. And this year, it's really our goalkeepers that just aren't giving us a chance to be competitive. But yeah, it was it was poor all over the pitch. I mean, mm-hmm. Rodwell and Galloway were probably the two worst of the lot, but it was it was really, really poor all over. Obviously, Simon Grayson's team selection wasn't great. He picked a team without whip. He made matters worse. If we were going to play the 3-5-2 formation... I think McMahon really did have to start to provide. Well, he's the only person who can really take someone on and get down to the byline and put crosses in. So that that formation was tailor made for him and Brian Oviedo. And with neither, well, with Oviedo unavailable and McMahon not starting, you really got a question: why we played that system? Why Honeyman was playing out wide when all he looks to do is cut inside? And it was really just a poor performance all around, starting with the
1: manager and then obviously with the players as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you, you, you mentioned um, about Ruta and letting in half of every chance that came his way, so every shot that came his way. We'll talk a little bit more about team selection in a bit. But first, I mean, that's your opinion. I think it's fair to say that we all pretty much agree with you. Um, Gav, what did you make of it, mate?
3: Yeah, it was pretty awful. I mean, as, as far as being in the stadium is concerned, that was as poisonous an atmosphere as I can remember, to be honest. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I mean it's it's galling looking around the stadium and seeing so many empty seats anyways but then for the ground to just you know half empty and again once the second goal goes in um, booing around the ground and just a general poisonous atmosphere it just shows you how far we have plummeted mm. um, and the performance reflected upon that you know it was just I mean no sort of collective idea there of what we were meant to be doing there was no plan um, I don't think the players weren't putting effort in I don't think that was an issue which is actually quite concerning because if that's the best then we have a long season ahead um, I, I thought I thought. to be honest I thought Simon Grayson sold the players down the river a little bit trying to play that system I mean George Honeyman works hard but he's not a right wing back um,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, I thought it, diluted his attack. it really diluted any momentum that he could get give yeah. to attack just having him with those defensive duties
3: mm. and I, I mean it, we didn't have any width at all I mean to play to play a five out of the back formation your full backs need to be proficient going forward you know mm. I mean not not we can't really compare ourselves to Chelsea but you watch Chelsea play that system and you watch their full backs pretty much sitting as high as anybody mm. um, I mean f- that's kind of how you those players have to operate and ours instead were sitting right alongside the centre halves for much of the game and it it's difficult really to, to see how that was ever going to work. And I just think when when we went in at half time and it was clear that that was becoming a real issue and we weren't going to, you know, we weren't going to get a foothold in the game trying to play that system, I think it was important that Grayson maybe looked at what he was doing and changed it up. And instead, we we made one change, but it was a forced one. And it was a centre-half. And in terms of system, nothing changed at all. Mm-hmm. And And we've got, you know... I would say a fairly decent championship squad there as players. I mean, it's not the worst squad in the league, but you've got to play to their strengths and we didn't do that at all. I think I think half-time I would have looked at that and thought, well, we're dying out for some pace and width, yeah. Um, could we perhaps get Callum McManaman on the pitch and maybe go to a four at the back so that the centre-halves were a little more comfortable and that we weren't actually playing people out of position? Um, instead, we came out exactly the same and nothing changed until it was too late and
2: Mm
3: -hmm. I don't know I just think as as an overall performance that was a bunch of very disjointed players who aren't really used to playing with each other trying to play a system which doesn't suit them at all Um, we were missing a number of key players there was no leadership really I mean O'Shea came on and he was at fault for one of the goals and I mean uh, we really did miss somebody in the middle of the park I thought barking orders because we were far too deep for long periods of the game and maybe somebody pulling us out of out the dirt and pushing the team forward might help. but ultimately we were shown up by a, an organised team. I, I wrote before the game on the site about the, the worry that we were going to be facing a, t- a team who would relish playing us really because Sheffield United have just come up um, and they've come up having won most weeks in that league this is a team who are used to winning and the challenge of facing a team like us doesn't phase a team like that. They simply he had to take the three points off us, and they didn't have to do a lot for the for the points really. They were mm. they were very organised, but I mean, what did the what did they ultimately do? They had two or three chances maybe, and took two of them, and we made it very easy for Clayton Donaldson for both goals. I thought I just think the first one was abysmally defensively. I mean, when you I mean, it's fair enough getting caught on the break, but. It, when you see the way that we lost possession with Dong and, and Honeymoon you know, exchanging passes, um, Galloway miles out of position, and then Wilson has to fly across to cover for him and then he doesn't close Donaldson down, tries to show him onto his left foot, which was a bad decision ultimately because that's the one he scored with. Um, right a far too easily beaten, it's just a poor goal to concede. And then mm-hmm. the, the second, um, O'Shea flat-footed, ball-watching and... Donaldson just races through and behind him and finishes fairly easily. I mean, Wright might as well not have been there. He was just a he was a statue in that situation and we, we just made it very, very easy for, a, I would say, an average opponent. And uh, not Forest must be watching that and relishing the opportunity to come and play us because, I mean, the Stadium Light isn't a great
1: place to be at the minute Absolutely. at all. Absolutely. Absolutely right now. I can imagine that everyone is looking at us rather hungrily. I mean... Um, Alex, what did you make of it, mate? What's your thoughts?
4: Well, I think looking back now, I mean, now that obviously the pre-match optimism's long gone, you have to look back at the team we've put out and the way we've set out to play, and you've got to think there was never really any chance, from my point of view now, that we were going to win that game. Like, there's just so many fundamental changes to the team, and I know we complained before about Mm. the fact that we were so consistent in that rigid 4-4-2 and that made us predictable, you know, double up on McGeady, exploit Galloway's flank. But we've gone from sort of having a team that's just so rigid to a one that's just had a, a team that's just like a deck totally reshuffled and all order yeah. has been completely lost. Yeah. I mean, you know, you've lost, I mean, Catamull, you know, a bedrock in your midfield. He's out in for Rodwell. You know, you've you've made Corner your captain for whatever bizarre reason. You know, you, you're adopting a wing back out of nowhere. You know, something we haven't, something we're yet to do really in a long time. Mm. We've got three at the back, a very awkward sort of setup, as evidenced by, you know, how uncomfortable Browning and Wilson looked. You know, Code just does his own thing these days. But yeah, I feel like, you know, if you set out like that, which we have done, there was not really any chance that we were going to sort of gel together and sort of just take on a championship team that as Gav said used to winning. You know, this is a team that's used to losing. This is a team that's used to having no visible identity. And I feel like you know like there's a there's a you know not like a, not like a consistent core contingent of players in the squad. But there's still a lot of them kicking about there who are used to just being shuffled around, mm. and you know there's not really any chance for them to sort of like work out together and sort of like adapt a like a, a core sort of way of playing which they can utilise season in season
1: out, you know. Well, I mean, it's interesting what you said about Kone. It makes me laugh actually because not two days before that game, someone turned around. Well, sorry, someone Simon Grayson turned around, and he um, he broached the subject of uh, Kone and the Dong being subject of transfer rumours and things like that. And he said that he'd had it. I don't know whether this was deliberate. I don't know if you realized what he was saying, but he he said that basically he told them to, to wait four months, get their heads down and work and wait four months and see where they are. Sort of thing, which, which obviously is a clear indication that they wanted to leave. They didn't want to be here. And then less than two days later, you've made one of those men, your captain on the pitch. Shocking, absolutely shocking. Like, this guy has clearly said that he doesn't want to be here. You've told him that he has to work hard and earn a move away, and then you give him the captaincy. I mean, even if you're getting rid of Lee Catamol, even if you haven't got John O'Shea on there, it doesn't matter. Honestly to God, I'd sooner that George Honeyman had been given the captaincy, because George Honeyman wants to be there. George Honeyman wants to play for that shirt. He's, he'd give him the captaincy. Certainly over, over someone like Kone, who literally is just waiting for his exit. He's, any effort that he does put in, any kind of attitude adjustment, any kind of stellar form that he manages to find somehow, unaccountably, it's all for purely selfish reasons. It's not because he wants to help the club. It's because he wants to help, help himself. Do you know what I mean? A, it, you cannot give someone like that the captaincy. And it's when you look at Kone as well, it's not like he's the most communicative person. It's not like he walks around, he bosses his area. He doesn't exactly... Just reek of charisma or anything like that. I've, I've never seen any reason to give Kone the the captaincy, and that just strikes me as a really outdated, traditionalist sort of English manager thing to do. Essentially, just oh, there's the big centre back. He's he's in the right position on the pitch, and he's a big guy, so I'll give him the captaincy. Everyone will listen to him because he's shouting at them and he's harder. An but it's just it's just it's ridiculous, really, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but Copley, what did you make of it, mate? Uh, the
0: thing that got me is it's Clayton Donaldson. You know what I mean? He's thirty-three-year-old journeyman striker. I don't think he's ever played in the Premier League. His his goal records like one in three, one in four at best. And we've presented him with the two golden opportunities, and he scored twice. It's just it's just such a Sunderland thing that happened. Like yeah. it's it's Clayton Donaldson, and it's it's a bit of a reality check for everybody. I think that a player like him. Who you know like respect for him for he what he's done in his hard, career? <laughs> yeah, who who we didn't pick up. He was a free transfer on deadline day, by the way, as well. So he didn't have you know teams kind of snapping at his heels trying to get him. No. He's not in a, he wasn't seen as a very attractive prospect, especially not in the championship. You know he's he's scoring two at the stadium of light like, on his debut. So it's kind of you know you know the defence have, have really done badly. And a, a touch on the point in the midfield, that Gav made as well does. You've got Rodwell and Dong in there, and even with Catterall in there replacing one of those. They can't really distribute or get the ball forward at pace, and half of that is there's not many options because people were grabbing moves a bit, but James Vaughan's kind static really. And with the formation we played, there was, there was no runs coming from the wing really. So half of it is that they don't have options to pass forward, but they just look lethargic when they have the ball, and it, nobody's presenting them with options. And I think it's a real concern the lack of the lack of like a ball player in the midfield. But even having having Williams on, he I know he's new, but he didn't look like he—he he didn't look like he could affect the game really. And hopefully that'll come in time with him. But it was just a bad day at the office all round, and even the the time shenanigans with the uh, with the kit unveiling was a uh, was a bit strange.
1: <laughs> Obviously, we have to preach the concept of the third kit. I don't know if any—well, some of you may be aware, all of you may be aware—during the match um, they unveiled the third kit, which is like a charcoal grey. Little number, Uh chances of using it are very slim, and we might see it once or twice this year. I doubt it. But they sent down a gentleman that works for the club. They sent him down to the mine in Beamish to pose for it. Now, <laughs> now I get what they're saying. You know, we all get what they're saying. We all get what they're coming from. What's their slogan again, Gav? Can you remind me what their slogan is? Do you remember? We are side by side. Oh no, not which that one. one. It's, it's the our our future is is. Something in, in, in our history. Our history. Yeah. yeah, our future's. Room. Our future's rooted in our history. There we go. So it's like one of the most cliché things you could ever imagine. And just ha- oh, don't get me wrong. As we said, we've all talked about it, and I'm sure most of you have wondered about it. Obviously, there's a strong connection between mining and Sunderland. We all get that. It's very obvious. I wonder if it's quite as bad because it's so obvious. Well. We've got Copley. Copley, you're a history buff. You tell us a little
0: about it. What do you think of this? Um, I like the idea, and I've written a couple of historical articles, and I've called for the club to to recognise the history and maybe do a bit more to pay tribute to it. But it's just the PR department. Every everything this seems to do, they seem to do, just seems to be completely off the pulse of Sunderland fans and what they're feeling, mm. and it does it doesn't sit well with me. You know, you've got you've got Barry, an ex worker down down a mine in Beamish, and James Henchard made the point in, a, in an article he did on the site. That uh, you know, he's got an Adidas logo plastered on him and a Daffabet logo, and that kind mm. of misses the point completely. Just, and that's another thing that doesn't sit well with me. You've got a work class area, and that we've got a we've got an in house payday loan sponsor. I mean, what's all that about? It's so I think it's kind of badly advised. I like the idea behind it, and I like the the nod of paying of paying tribute to the history, but it just seemed like it was it was done in completely the wrong way. Using kind of that history being the specific bit of history is as well, with the miners' strikes and, you know, battles mm. between socialism and capitalism to mm. for your own commercial gain. It just completely yeah. misses the point and is a failure, fundamentally, to understand the history.
1: Offensive, almost, you'd say. I, I would thinking. say, I mean, I'm,
0: I'm not a miner myself, but mm. if I was, and uh, obviously there's a lot of miners that support Sutherland or past miners, ex-miners mm. that support Sutherland, I would just think that that attempt at understand our history is a complete failure in a way because they've completely missed the pod. Mm.
1: Mm. What do you make of Alex?
4: I do just think it's quite insulting, really, how they're sort of promoting this sort of slogan, you know, our future's rooted in our history. I mean, you know, as a slogan, obviously, it, you know, it, it reads and it sounds very well, but it couldn't be further from the truth. You know, our future and our history are two things that are completely distinct.
2: Mm. You know,
4: like what Sunderland's rooted in is a proud working-class culture, and the future is, you know, you know a, a nice you know, couple of wealthy idiots acid-stripping the club, all the while telling yeah. us to be proud of what we've got while we we'll slowly have less and less of it. Mm. You know, our future's now history, you know, be proud of what we are, you know, we're Sunderlands, you know, but at the same time, you know, now just the one is to just sit back and just sort <laughs> of, you know, I, I don't really know what to say. It's just like,
1: yeah. It's, it is, it's, I mean, it's indicative as well. I mean, so much, of, we use that word so much on this podcast, but it is, it, it's an example. It's an example of the sort of, um, mm. The lack of understanding that you get from the people that run the club, the people that make decisions like that on the kit release and, um, well, anything like that really, PR, everything in general, is a very crucial part of football. You know, it's a massive part of it. I think sometimes we we sort of mock the idea of PR. You sort of mock any public relations that are done and everything is seen as cliché. But in fact, it's a it's a huge part of what any football club should be doing. It's certainly a huge part of a successful football club. And it is concerning that things like every time they do something, like they don't seem to get it right. Everything they touch turns to shit. It really does because, I mean, we asked, we demanded uh, that. Here's an example for you, right? I wrote something about them, uh, the 20th anniversary, quote unquote, uh, that was a piss poor celebration of something like that, a 20 year anniversary of that stadium. Um, and I said, like, they didn't even bother to get any atmosphere going. They didn't even bother with the colliery band or something like that. Who would, would have been delighted? To play at the salt. where were the exploits? Even charged, probably even charged, but they did. They did it for this kit release. Uh, but here's the thing, right? This is this is what I'm getting at. So they, I don't know if they read that and thought, oh, that's a good idea, or if someone actually went, yeah, literally, let's get colliery banned because that's a, It's a no-brainer. Really. When they did that, they couldn't even turn the mics up on it. You, you couldn't hear it. A few people got told about it earlier, actually, in one of our chats, and they were like, oh, really? Was that there? Like, I, did, I didn't notice it was there. It's like you you it's it's almost they get close they they go halfway towards accomplishing something towards doing the right thing and that part can be you you can funnel that all down as to like to effort the effort they put in so they mean well in that sense but doing something half-assed even if you mean well it isn't worth doing because it's offensive it it ruins the object of whatever you're if you mm. can't do something properly, if you can't go big, go home. Do you know what I mean? That That's the real issue here. That happens yeah. a lot with Sunderland. They come very close to to doing the right thing. And then just before they get there, they do a detour. Or they go off a fucking cliff, essentially. And they just can't quite make that the right thing as their final destination. They can't quite get there. Now, as I say, it's indicative of the entire club. It happens at every level of the club. It's from owner down to, well, certainly every executive level at the club. Everyone there is accountable. Everyone there is complicit. This is the issue here. We're talking about a root and branch review of the club. That's what's needed, really, if we're all honest with each other. But we'll leave that topic for another time, perhaps. But at the moment, I mean, going back to what we were talking about, the actual match, it was pathetic for my part. Anyway, it was was pathetic. It was was very, very, um, well, it was just weak, wasn't it? It was clearly a fragile team. We've had a fragile team for a while now. And that was very clear. It was very clear that the players that we brought in, the debutantes yesterday, that they were expected to urgently make some sort of impact. And I'm not sure that they knew what impact they were supposed to make beyond score a goal, go out and win the game. Do you know what I mean? As for his selection, I mean his tactics. Oh, I, I don't understand. But I've been thinking about this. In truth, we this is sort of this was to be expected because we. We were given the option of a really good manager, someone that we could sink our teeth into, per se, Derek McInnes. And now it's starting to, look, I mean, from for my part, from what I can tell, it's starting to look like the whole takeover talk and being worried about whether he'd still have a job or not was the least of his concerns. I think he probably got lied to by um, Martin Bain, like most people are, told that he'd have a budget to work with, a mid-level championship budget and he didn't fall for it because he's a bit too long in the tooth, he's a bit too sensible, or he did the sensible thing and he asked everyone in football, maybe he went to Sam Allardyce and asked him, look, can I trust trust Martin Bain? What do you think Sam Allardyce is going to say to that? Yeah, of course, he's lovely, Bain. Can I trust Ellis Short? Yeah, he's fantastic. It's not going to happen. Every single previous manager is going to give you a bad review, just like the owner would give you a bad review of all those managers. It's interesting to look at that as an aside anyway. So, uh, as I'm saying, I, I think the whole point with Simon Grayson and his tactics it's important to remember that Simon Grayson was essentially like the last choice. I, I don't know how much effort they put into finding a manager, but he wasn't brought to us because he's some sort of, um, he's some sort of tactical genius. He isn't renowned for his tactical acumen. He's not, you know what I mean? He's not a world famous tinkerer who manages to get the best out of everything. He was essentially hired. And we were pretty much told at the time that he was hired because he can work on almost no budget. But when you say work, I mean Jimmy Lawson, He's pointed out a couple of times that Simon Grayson was fired from this league twice in his career. So it's it's important to bear things like that in mind, particularly when we're talking about tactics. We, are we expecting too much, Gav? Do you think we're expecting too much of Simon Grayson to tactically um, to expect to expect him to change things around?
3: Not not necessarily. I, th- I think that um, I think the system he employed at the weekend was probably. Um the the one that I'd like to see him try further down the line were better players, but I think I think it was just a bit too much to ask of those players. And um my my worry with Grayson tactically anyways is that when it's obvious something's not working, he doesn't react to it, um we tend to stick by it until it's a bit too late. And that that's something that we've had from a number of managers in recent years, not not just Grayson, but I mean he gets to a he gets to a stage where it's too late to make changes and he does it. Um like like I mentioned earlier, I think at half time we, we probably should have switched you know, maybe to a four at the back formation. Um, got McManaman on to try and get him behind and, and create chances. Instead, we're we stuck by with what we've been going with initially and nothing changed. Um and that's not the first time this has happened, you know. Um we, we, we've we've already seen it well, we definitely saw it against Bondley and um Chef Leeds leads that. When, when there was when there was something there to to change and it was fairly obvious to to the fans watching um he waits a little bit too late for, to do anything about it and I, I just I hope that's something he's willing to, to to move on really because um going through the rest of the season if we're behind in games we need we need to be prepared to bite the bullet and make a change and and you know roll the dice essentially like we, we don't do that enough and I don't know, I th- I think I think it's just it, it's not naivety because he's certainly not naive. I think that he's he's very strict and stuck on his ideals and he maybe thinks that um showing faith in the players to to put it right is you know, the way forward, I guess. And rather than rather than, you know, identify that Brennan Galloway wasn't playing well or identify that, you know, the back three were struggling in communication, mm-hmm. um You know, maybe it's just better management sometimes to just go right. That's not working. Let's just change it and see what happens. Um, I I guess it's all you know, hindsight, and it's easy enough for me saying it now after we've lost. But you know, I think the manager maybe struggles to just identify that there's an issue going on and needs to make a difference and. I don't know, maybe it's the man-management man side of things. He looks at a player like Galloway and thinks, no, I'll give him his chance to... He's working hard, even though he's not playing well, I'll give him his chance to put it right. Um, he's, you know, he's, he's maybe looking at that and thinking he has a young player who's coming out to prove himself. I don't want to knock his confidence, but I think, unfortunately, when you're getting beat at home and the crowd's starting to get on your back, you've got to maybe make a positive change. And hopefully, I mean, hopefully that's not something we'll see throughout the season. Hopefully he's prepared to, to be different, but we'll, I guess we'll see.
2: I think every manager has a specific skill set, and Grayson's clearly proven himself to be a very capable manager when it comes to organising teams, making teams hard to beat, making teams that, that will graft, that will work hard. That's what we saw in the first three games. That's what he's done throughout his career. So of, I'd say, the Norwich game that is the ideal Simon Grayson game. Let the other team have possession in non dangerous areas, be clinical rely on the natural talent of your attacking players and defend well. I think that, that is his ideal football match, that result. And the problem is, and the reason I was critical of the appointment when we made it, and you know what? Ellis Short has ruined this club to such an extent that he might have been the best manager we could have got. He might be the best case scenario for where Sunderland are now. Mm-hmm. But the issues with Grace Nair, he's never been good at dominating games. He's never been good at dictating games. He's never been good at setting up teams to attack. And the first two games we've gone into as a favourite this season, we've been really poor. And that's sort of the limitations on Grayson as a manager, the limitations on how he coaches. And really, for us to get anywhere, we're going to have to rely on the individual talent of Williams, the individual talent of McManaman, the individual talent of Graben and McGee. Fortunately, those guys at this level should be good enough to see us mid-table. But I don't think Grayson's going to be the saviour. With Gaff's point with Galloway, I disagree. I think, I think Grayson's aware of how bad he is. I just think he thought, if we're playing with wing-backs, he needed the left footer there. Mm. I think that's the only reason Galloway started. I think he knows how bad he is. I think he's aware of that. But, yeah, no, I mean, I just, I just don't think he's that good. But at the same time, we, we appointed our manager so late, we needed someone who could do all the transfers, who was already scouting the league. And there just wasn't that many managers available. I mean, I talked up Paul Heckenbottom, but ultimately he's a flavour of the month. He's someone who hasn't done that much in football. It's just got to that stage where we're so desperate, we're so limited, and that's not really going to change
1: until Short goes. Mm. It's quite damning, but it's true. Well, I think I think, I mean, we'll talk before we get before we go on that. I want to talk again um, about Rooter. We, we spy, we'll talk about all the players actually, but Rooter in particular. Um, Steel is he going to be any better? That's the real question. I mean, we've got obviously Stradex on loan. Mika's awful. Steel is uh, meh. I think this is the trouble. We were obviously spoiled for choice when it's an interesting thing that the, one of the biggest issues that we have now is a goalkeeper, a striker. You know, what I mean, we, it's amazing to think that we had Jermaine Defoe and Jordan Pickford not 12 months ago. Uh, it's just, it's just scary, really, when you consider what we've got now. And the choice between Router and Vaughan and things like that. But talking about Rooter and Steel, I mean, it's fair to say that Router's lost his place or should have lost his place. For the next match, but it's interesting to note that when he was playing originally, and I have commended him for this actually when we signed him. Um, after he played really well and he made a couple of good saves in that pre season game that made the, the uh influenced everyone's decision to bring him in, he ran to his girlfriend up a in the stands and he was really ecstatic. Ran over to her and gave her And I imagine at the time I was thinking, yeah, that's that's brilliant, you know, he's really happy that he's played well for Sunderland, he really wants to do something for Sunderland. But then I watched his performance yesterday and I thought, shit, is that like a, yeah, we can afford to pay the rent sort of cuddle? <laughs> you know I mean? <laughs> like, thank God I just made that save. Like, I'll, I'll never do that again. Thank God I managed that. It's, I mean, it's still really going to make that much of a difference? I mean, you would argue that he has more to play for than Rua. He has more of a connection with the area, I suppose. Um, but uh, again, his, his talent, his ability... I haven't seen anything of him. I haven't seen I haven't seen any reasons to believe that if we get rid of Fruit and we put Steele in that he'll make those saves. What do you make about him, Gav? You you've seen Steele play.
3: Yeah, um I, I think Jason Steele is much of a muchness, isn't he? I think he's he started pretty poorly against, you know, Celtic and then found his feet somewhat in the first few games, but um I don't know. I think I think he's not really gonna make that much of a difference. We're not gonna go and that not not Forest game go wow you know how look how much better he is and root you know they're pretty much the same mm. um, and the issue we've got I guess is like you alluded to before we're coming away from having a world class goalkeeper in my eyes to you know championship goalkeepers which is a shame I guess it's a shame that we've had to make that downgrade but I mean it's just something we've come, we'll have to come to accept you know we're, we're not a, we're not a Premier League club anymore mm. um, and, and relegation as a result has seen us recruit players in those positions who are downgrade so Jason Steele probably if if he does come in on Tuesday um, I wouldn't be totally shocked I think Wright you know didn't do great um, at the weekend and I guess I guess the problem the problem Grayson faces is that now both these goalkeepers have played and haven't really lit the place up and you know we haven't got a lot of choice in that position, and one of them is going to have to stay claim for that spot. Unfortunately, right as great as he was at Carlisle um, hasn't been able to do that. And I guess the shaky defense in front of both keepers has, has made their job a little bit more difficult. I guess um, he's, you know, he's a he's he's a championship goalkeeper, but he's going to he's he's going to at least come in and there's going to be some familiarity there. Maybe I'm I'm trying to look for positives in bringing steel in, but. I guess ultimately, if, when, when you when you're playing a an assortment of players in front of the goalkeeper, like we did at the weekend, where we had Galway coming back in, Wilson coming in the team, um, having to make a defensive change at half time, playing Honeyman at right wing back, you know, all of those things are going to cause issues defensively because there's no continuity there. The players aren't used to playing with each other in those positions and things like that, and then the goalkeeper's job's made it a lot more difficult, I guess, but. In, in the case of I he, he didn't cover himself in glory. That first goal, he was very poor, mm. and the second goal, he, he was no, he wasn't much better. He was he was you know vacant. But I mean, the defense didn't help him. Um, I just I just hope that I hope that whoever plays Tuesday you know makes amends. Like Steele needs a big performance. Router needs a big performance. Um, so whoever plays really need. We saw last season the, the games where we did pick up points, and obviously those were few and far between. But the games that we did, Pickford played such a huge part. You know, basically kept us in games, kept the scores down, and we're conceding too many goals. And I think, I think if you're the goalkeepers now, you've got to look at the situation and think like, this spot's still really up for grabs, and I need to take my chance when I get it. And it's, funny. you know, although the atmosphere doesn't help in the stadium if it's a, if it's you know, a bit poisonous and the fans are getting on the backs and things, because because the performance on the pitch isn't great. Um, you can't let that affect your confidence. You've got to be able to step up and you know, grab it with both hands and. I'm, I'm hoping that even if whoever it is, is you know the, it's not it's not the most difficult job I guess because that the competition isn't that's isn't that great it's just a it's a bit of a weak position for us at the
1: minute mm. I mean we'll go to Twitter now uh, for some of our questions we'll always put a tweet out see what you've got to say we'll ask. we've got some good ones actually we've got some decent ones sometimes we get some proper shit ones but we've got some really good ones today um one of the interesting ones I want to cover this to be honest um Well, I think we've touched on it slightly. Not our work. This is Chris Dixon. Not our worst ever player, but is Rodwell our worst ever signing? Anonymous at any level. Never supports junior or struggling players. I will briefly take this, but I will also pass it off to a couple of you. Um, Rodwell is he our worst ever signing? It's it's a good it's a bloody good question when you think about it because we've had Dross sign for us, but this. This gentleman, like this lad, I've never seen anything like Gav, uh, Gav like Jack Rodwell, Gav Rodwell. Damn it, Gav. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen anything like Jack Rodwell. I mean, when you consider that Jack Rodwell, aside from costing us what was it, close to ten million? Does anyone remind me of his fee? Anyone? It was yeah. ten million. Yeah, yeah, was ten million. Yeah, ten million. It cost us. It <laughs> ten million. It cost us. He's currently on what sixty k a week, I believe. It's rumored to be and he had clauses yeah. in his contract um that he well he's got relegation well no relegation clause is it so he's he's not going to be able to or he doesn't have to take a hit to his wages so i think he's probably the highest earner right now isn't he which is a, yeah, a scary yeah. concept to have someone like Jack Rockwell, who can't even impose himself on an under 23s game now i know he scored uh last night but yesterday rather I know he scored on Saturday, but that was like a, a glancing header. and We were effectively just lucky that that anywhere, went anywhere near him. I mean, to be honest with you, I'm, I say lucky. It didn't do anything for us. I, I wonder if it didn't do something bad for us. It didn't work negatively because it gave him the impression that he could score goals. Or it gave someone the impression that if you stick Jack Rodwell near the goal long enough, he'll put one in. He's just he's a, he's a terrible player. Uh, as you could, for the you word, could be right
3: there, dim Sorry to jump in, but you could be right there. You know, the, the goal... Might, might mean he's kept his place for Tuesday night. Yeah. As Jimmy alluded to earlier, he didn't play that well anyway. So that, that, well, I guess we'll see what happens in the game. Yeah. But yeah,
1: well, that's, I, that's I would, I would hate to think that if Catamol was fit, for example, that he didn't get in oh, and Don didn't get in the team because Jack Rodwell's sitting there and he managed to score a goal. Don't forget, we were told that we could do or we were supposed to expect like goals from every area of the pitch. <laughs> which is hilarious really when you think about it we haven't got a striker that's for sure not a decent one anyway Copley what do you make of Jack Rodwell my friend
0: uh, Well, just to go back to the uh, to the site and kind of Rodwell's contract and his inflated wage mm. some, somebody made the point on the site earlier that that goal that Rodwell scored actually in comparison it was performance is a bit of an insult because you probably get a bonus for that you know I mean, sometimes sometimes it does depend on whether the team win the game, but knowing some and the negotiating skills, I doubt that was actually put in the contract. So it's it's likely that he'll get paid for that. And, you know, (laughs) his his performance doesn't warrant or merit that. And I think I'll, I'll go back to the point I made earlier as well. With us having not a lot of firepower up top, Graben looks like he can pitch in, but he's not going to be 30 goals. Vaughan doesn't look like he's going to score. Honeyman's still relatively inexperienced. You can't expect him to chip him with goals. Watmore's coming back from an injury? Madge is young. Asoro's young. I mean, Ada McGeady's like a one goal and three player. That's not enough for me attacking players. We no. need we need goals to come from midfield. You've got Catamol who never scores. Rodwell never scores, really, unless it's a stupid handball against Hull. And Dong's only scored against Crystal Palace. You know, McNair's not exactly prolific. He got two against QPR. We have McNair. You know, and Williams is still bedding in. So it's kind of like, where where are these goals going to come from? Unless we're winning 1-0, scrappy 1-0s and keeping clean sheets and defending well, it's not going to happen.
1: Mm, and there's no but chance we can't, of... we,
0: can't, we can't score and we can't keep a clean sheet.
1: So it's... Uh, <laughs> there's no chance I mean, of, not, not to exactly.
0: bring the mood even even further down, but it, it just really doesn't look good at the moment. And Rodwell's just endemic of everything that's been bad of the club. Like, it, it maybe in the past 10 years, you know, signed... Signed for an inflated fee. Didn't do our research on him. Didn't t- take time to get to know the player to get to know whether he was interested in coming here. I mean, and David Moyes was like was the man who brought him through as well. He was he was supposed to get on well with Moyes, so he's even had the ideal manager for him, <laughs> and, and it just hasn't worked for him. Um, I used to feel a bit sorry for him because of the uh, his injury record, but you can't excuse him anymore. He's no. he's been he's been fit for a while now. And you, you can't use the excuse of injuries. I mean, gibral Drib- Cissé came back from those two horrible, horrible leg blicks and was still pretty competent. He wasn't, you know, a world-class striker or anything, but he was a darn sight, well, better than Rodwell in his performances.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, it's a, it's what I, mean. I, I, I think it would be easy. To, he's certainly not the worst signing we've ever made, but he is absolutely... He's probably one of the worst decisions we've made with regards to player contracts and things like that. It would be a bit different if he was the same as everyone else, you know, if he was um, 20K a week or something like that. And, I mean, then it would just be the same as any of our other crap players. But the fact that we really got bent over a barrel with him, just like we seem to do in every sort of negotiation or in every single part of the football, um, yeah, he, he certainly wasn't a, wasn't a brilliant choice. I mean... Talking about the players, though, obviously we we should spend a little bit of time and see what we actually got because the reality of the situation is that we had very little money and we've got we've got what we've got. The window's closed now. Um, we've spent less than two million, I believe. Um, we did get a bargain in Aidan McGeady. I mean, it's interesting to know that he's already injured, um, but. Whatever, he's 32, if you know what I mean, he hasn't got the best record. Hopefully, we'll be able to sort of maintain with him, and it won't. But it's clear that we won't be relying on him. We can't rely on him for 46 games, and that's a, another big concern. And also, if you look at Graban, again, I'm talking about our two goal scorers so far, Graban and McGeady. Megidi. McGeady's already injured, and Graban looked lost yesterday. He, he looked like he was running. He's got plenty of energy. I can't fault him for that. But more than once he had the ball at his feet and he didn't know where to go with it and that was quite a concern i don't know if that's because he's been told look you're not the striker it feed the ball through to question mark or what i don't know what the attitude is there but he, he, he's not exactly emanating confidence or anything like that but talking about like we got mcManaman we got wilson we got williams we saw all of them on saturday wilson is well it's it's early days yet it's really difficult for us to be a good judge of these players because they're not only are they new to the team, they're going cheap for a reason. None of, none of them are match fit, so we re- it was really scraping the barrel. I mean, I think we'd be lucky if out of the, all the players we brought in, if we managed to get two good players out of them. Now McManaman's the one that came with some some sort of pedigree behind him. He had people were saying McManaman was an exciting player and he, he could excite you. I mean, he came on, I think he was, well, it was our second sub. He came on and he did make some sort of small impact initially. He did busy himself around and he did look like he had his own game plan. It wasn't necessarily the whole team's game plan, but he did look like he had his own. Yeah, um, that was the only good thing I could tell. And Wilson gave the ball away constantly over and over again. Uh, it's, uh, they just don't fill me with confidence, I think it's fair to say. I mean, Alex. What do you make of McManaman?
4: I think we looked a lot more positive. Well, I say a lot more. We looked like a marginably, uh, marginably, a marginally, you know, better team for what it was, just based on the fact that he gave us width, which we didn't have at all in that game prior. You know, what mm-hmm. I mean, I think it got. I think he made a few good runs towards the end of the game when the game was dead in the water. But it looked like, obviously, if that was happening in the first half, you could have got asses off
1: seats. You know, mm-hmm. absolutely. I mean, these it's not a it's hard isn't it it's really because we all knew that we wouldn't have much money Grayson clearly knew that he wouldn't have much money and well Bain obviously <laughs> Bain knows that we haven't got much money So, and that was obviously that was a huge part of the negotiations for for getting uh, well it was a huge part of every negotiation really it, it will have affected everything our finances have affected everything we've done they affected and influenced all of our player sales in a month's time if McGeady's still fit we'll be Counting our lucky stars that we've got McGeady, that we managed to actually get a decent player out of this entire transfer window. Uh, it's ridiculous. Let's talk about we haven't, we haven't. Obviously, we haven't discussed it yet. We were told we didn't need a striker, didn't need a striker, don't need a striker. Now I don't know whether Simon Grayson said that because um, he was a bit of a huff for because he didn't want. I mean, it was argued that he didn't want to. You know, he didn't want to bring down the mood. He didn't want to focus on it because there's very little he could do about it. He doesn't want. To, He wants wants to be non-confrontational. Clearly, there's only one person that can affect any real change when it comes to Simon Grayson and how much money he's got to spend. It's not Ellis Short from all accounts, although ultimately the buck does stop him, but it's Martin Bain. Martin Bain's the man that anyone has to go to if they want money. That's the reality. But Martin Bain's job is to make sure that Sunderland don't spend money. So uh, this is a difficult situation when you need money, but the man who you have to ask for that money has been brought in specifically to make sure that nobody spends money, that we keep the budget as low as possible. That must be a difficult situation. So I'm appreciate that there's no point, really. There's no point in Grayson getting upset. For a start, he accepted that there'd be no money. If he was told that there'd be a, a mid-level championship budget, which is what he told us when he first signed for us, um, he's either naive or, or he was lied to. As that, those are the only two things that could have happened. It wasn't just a case of... You know, I mean, mid-level championship budget. Two hundred million pounds has been spent in this cha- in this transfer window in the championship. Two hundred million pounds, and on average, clubs have spent between twelve to sixteen million. These are clubs that are operating at the mid-middle of the championship right now. Some have spent less. Some some are obviously stronger over time, and but most of the teams they had to spend. When you look at our outgoings compared with our spending, you're talking about thirty-two million at least. Just for Manoni and Pickford. Any more money, I'm not entirely sure. It's one of the beautiful things about being a Sunderland fan. You can't actually be sure of anything that's going on at the club because in spite of their claims that they're transparent, they aren't. They're anything but. Their claims that they're transparent are similar to their their marketing capabilities and the actual relatability levels that we have with them as fans. It's similar to the cliches that they roll out and the slogans they roll out. Because it's just, it's all just it's platitudes, isn't it? They don't really make that much effort. But speaking specifically about money, we weren't anywhere close to a mid-level budget. We were nowhere close to that, which means that Grayson either accepted a lie that Martin Bain gave him, or he lied to us. Or he didn't have any concept of what a mid-level championship budget is, which I find quite concerning because he's been here like three times already. So if that, if you knew you were going to have absolutely nothing to work with, if you have to just say that, I know people, it, it was more like a rumour going around, wasn't it? It was a rumour that we'd have nothing. And we were like, nah, surely not. Surely not. With broadcasting money, that's 90 plus million. And then parachute payments over three years, what, 30 million, 30 million? Something like that. There's a lot of money coming in this club, another 32 million with Jordan Pickford. You know what I mean? We aren't on the bare binds of our arse. Something really rotten is happening at Sunderland. Either they weren't telling the truth initially or they're not telling the truth now something really bad is happening at the club. But we move on, don't we? Alex, what do you have to say about it, my friend? Yeah, just about that.
4: Honestly, I can't help but think that maybe Martin Bain chose his words very carefully when selling this job to Grayson so as to deceive him about it, really. Because if you remember back to that interview, his first interview, when he talked about the transfer budget, he said, it's not the biggest in the championship, but it's not the, it's not the least. Which I think, factually, is completely true. I think 1.25 million is neither... Well, it's definitely not... You know the most lustrous, nor is it the most threadbare. So, but what it is, it's somewhere towards the, towards the bottom. You know, you're down there with like your, your mill walls and your teams like that for having a really low budget. So, maybe like what's Martin Bain actually told Grayson? You know, has he? I mean, I can't, I mean, I, you know, I can't believe for a second that he's told him, okay, you've got less than two million to spend, but you know, at the same time, he's, def- he's obviously not told him that he's had a figure a lot more than 1.25. So, he's either exaggerated something mm-hmm. or he's just chosen his words really carefully. So that Grayson will take the job and then later find out that the the harsh reality is, is you've got very little to spend, but you've got a little bit more than the teams that are almost certain to get relegated. Mm,
2: Definitely. To play devil's advocate a bit, the one thing which I think Connor said the other day when he writes for the site, which I believe I sort of agree with to an extent is... Because we uh, marginalised all our backroom staff when it looked like Dennis McInnes was coming in, because we don't really have a proper scouting structure, we have only been signing famous English players, famous English-based players. So those players are potentially going to be on a higher wage bracket than the players that other clubs in the Championship are signing and therefore maybe the two million is not reflective quite of all the business we've done. But but yeah, no, obviously we needed a striker. We wanted a striker and we didn't get one. And that, that looks bad on everyone in the club from Grayson to Bain to Short. It, it just, it, it reflects the lack of long-term thinking at the club, the old-fashioned system in terms of how we set up and go about trying to be a progressive football club. And yeah, it, it looks terrible on everyone. And I'm, I'm not going to sit here and defend those two because yeah, they've, they've not done a good job. But I, I do think the wage point was one worth making. Yeah,
1: certainly. This is the. It's very important to bear in mind. You know, there, there are reasons behind what we're doing. Like obviously, the big conspiracy theory is that Short is stripping the club of assets and he's looking to move on, which I, I, I think that's absolutely true. I think he's trying to clear as much debt and bring in as much money as he possibly can before he leaves. I think that's pretty obvious by now. Uh, there is a reason that we're skint, though. You know what I mean? So, absolutely, you should make that point, Jimmy, because it's easy to forget that. It's, and it's part of the reason people say, oh, this has been coming, this has been coming, this has been coming. I don't personally believe that. I think that's uh, there are far too many factors and nothing is written in stone in football. Every year that we survived, we were given a clean slate effectively. We might have been in debt, but so long as our owner was continuing to support us financially, that wasn't going to be an issue. Um, but, yeah, to some extent, it has built up. It has built up as a result of poor decisions made by people who were inevitably brought in either by the CEO or by the by the owner. I think that's the trouble. It's it, it would be remiss to accuse Ellis Short of deliberately getting into the game of football and, of football ownership. To either make instant profit, obviously you knew, anyone in their right mind, especially a man who becomes a billionaire and does their research, finds out that you can't make you can't turn a profit like that. Not with a club like Sunderland, not with most clubs. Unless you were lucky enough to pick up something like Man City or Man United for a ridiculously low fee, you aren't going to turn a profit. So it's it's more like a, a hobby, an ongoing hobby, isn't it? I know it's, that sounds amazing to us because we're all fans. But for a billionaire, I said, oh, really? Can I get this on the cheap, this football club? All right, like, that would be fun. I'll see how I got And there is room for profit-making. There, there is room to generate revenue. So it isn't completely out there. It isn't just a hobby. So I don't think he came in with any bad intentions like that or poor intentions. And I don't think, I don't think what's happened is reflective of him as a person necessarily. I'm, I can't defend him and I can't defend the lack of transparency and the lack of communication. And obviously as time goes by and things get worse, hatred develops. It's not so much uh, you know, at first you're like, oh well, you can't blame him, you can't blame him, you can't blame him, but at the same time was maintaining some pity for the terrible decisions he's made for the ridiculous choices of of people that he surrounded himself with surrounding himself with yes men and other people who wanted what was best for themselves. I mean a lot of these people have gone from the club now but they were there this entire time and it was him that brought them in. So it's difficult. It's difficult to, to be unbiased without a short, really, I suppose. But as I say, Jimmy made a very valid point there. There is a serious financial problem. So it can be understood to some. It can be explained away. But I think if we were given the reality, if we were, if we were given the real figures of what's going on, and we were given the same options or rather if we could evidence the same options that Short had been given over the years, I think we could easily pinpoint what he's done wrong where he's gone wrong, you know what I mean? I think if all of the details were laid out in front of us, it wouldn't be hard for us to point at a figure or point at a date and go, well, look what you did here, you've bought that right up, or look what's here, where did that money go? You know what I mean? So that's the trouble, isn't it? As fans, we we expect answers. But similarly, we we shouldn't really expect them because at the end of the day, he doesn't have to tell us anything, which is one of the maddening things about him. Sorry, James, you wanted to add to this?
0: Yeah, I, I agree with uh, with yourself and Jimmy. One thing Jimmy said though about the club trying the hardest to be progressive. Like, I, I don't genuinely believe that. I don't think they are trying to be progressive. And if you look mm. back at scouting, when is the last time that Sunderland had a good transfer window, apart from Allardyce in January? Allardyce, yeah, And that's because uh, of who
1: he knows as well. Lo-
0: looking back, you may be looking at when we got Bent possibly, or maybe the maybe the window we got. Sesson Young, the rest of like Flatter to deceive. I can't think of a player that. You know, has I
1: would been go for up. the phone and that was
0: fantastic business. The, yeah, that that was a good bit of business but in, t- in terms of like that was still correcting a, m- a mistake that shouldn't have happened yeah. in the first place, do you know what yeah. I mean? You know, it's it's bad when you have to correct your mistakes constantly and there doesn't seem to be a proper network there. There doesn't seem to be, you know, any creativity or any sort of imagination in place we go for. It. It's always the standard kind of, not household names because to be a household name you've got to be good, just kind of names that have been around there and, you know, maybe the, and usually kind of like British players as well. Um, and it, it it just smacks of kind of desperation. And maybe it's not all the scouting team's fault as well. You know, Sunderland is an unattractive prospect, I think, to a lot of a lot of football players. But again, it's it's up to the club to be progressive and make us an attractive prospect and try and persuade players and make them want to come and sell the club as
2: well. Mm. Uh, that's ultimately what's probably the most disappointing about... Ellis Short's tenure at the club. Essentially, if you look at it, we tried to rely on an old school British and Irish manager, someone who knows the league in and out, to sign the players, to manage the club, to have autonomy. With a more talented manager in Martin O'Neill six years ago, and it didn't work. It didn't work because we don't have the budget to do it. We can't afford to just sign British players on big wages and sign the best available talent. It didn't work. He was rightly sacked, and then six years on, we're repeating the same mistakes with a less talented manager in the league below playing miserable football. And it's all just because the owner doesn't care. He's just, he's left us at a point where we're now all just twiddling our thumbs as fans forced to watch a shit product. That's not going to change until, until he walks out. It's it's really frustrating. I really don't know what to do as a fan what what what's what have I got to look forward to he's just completely ripped the club apart he knows what he's doing isn't right and yet at the same time he doesn't care enough to change it and that's that's really what it's yeah. it's a punch in the stomach every week and and even then Sheffield United yesterday that was the worst performance than I was expecting and I thought my expectations couldn't get any lower He's he's really killed it and Copley's right. We're not scouting in a smart way. We marginalised our backroom staff because we thought we were getting Derek McInnes in, a guy who was sacked by Bristol City. Oh, Derek McInnes, let's let's get rid of our backroom staff. Let's not have any structure. Let's let him sign all our players. Oh, he doesn't want to come. Let's go to our backup option. He can run the football club from the ground up. Every football team in the top two leagues in English football should have a director of football, should have a scouting system. And we know that. That's that's why Ellis Short, to his credit, tried to change things four years ago. We know this system doesn't work, mm. and yet we're using it because because well, well, Ellis Short doesn't care. He's just stripping the club of assets. He doesn't care, and and we've just got a, we're just lumped with it. We've just got to put up with a shitstorm until he leaves. And it's it's really really
1: frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. You nailed it there, mate. To be honest, that, that's all. They're all very good points. I mean, particularly. What you're talking about with him not caring. I think you're right. He has given up by this point. I mean, it's interesting to note that we're basically one of the things that's holding us back as a team financially is working within Championship fair play rules, um, financial fair play rules, or rather permitted losses. Uh, our permitted losses right now. That's what we're. That's really what hinders us. The interesting thing about permitted losses is that they're only. We would only be in a situation where we literally could not afford to bring anyone in, even on a wage budget scale, if the owner had decided flat out to stop putting money into the club. And that's a fact. If the owner was willing to fund us the way that he claims to have done over and over again to ill effect, if he was still putting that money into this club, we would have been able to afford to bring in a striker. We would have been able to afford to bring in another centre-back, which we sorely need, another midfielder, which we sorely need were a better goalkeeper. In fact, we might not have had to sell Jordan Pickford. And I, I still believe that we don't have to have sold Jordan Pickford. So it's interesting that when they came out in that, what was it? He said, um, this was just after the, the supposed takeover that he turned down on the basis that he, um, he didn't believe it was in the best interests of the fans or the club that this new, this, whoever this mysterious owner was came in. He wasn't in the best. unlike like, you have the fucking right to make that decision anyway, mate, which is a ridiculous concept. Because you clearly don't know how to run the fucking club anywhere but into the ground really. But beyond that, it's interesting to note that Martin Bain wrote that little piece for him and came out and said the owner will continue to invest his, invest into, in the club both financially and personally. And a few months later, here we are. And the only reason that we can't afford players and we know we can't afford players is if the owner had refused to invest financially in the club any further. So you've literally got the owner and the CEO lying to the fans. That's what's happening. They're lying to us. They're lying to us consistently. They're lying to us as much as they can, and they will continue to lie to us until they're so far away from any kind of accountability that they don't have to worry about it anymore. I mean, they still don't have to worry about it right now because, really, we're a bunch of mugs, aren't we? Because we see and we lap it up, and fair enough, we sit here and we talk about it, and there might be thousands who completely disagree. We chat about it in a pub or whatever. But what does anyone ever really do about it? What have we done about this? What have we done to change the way this club is run? Is it enough that we sit here as fans and say, oh, well, this is shit, isn't it? This is, this is terrible. I hate Short. I hate Bane, I hate the fact that we've got no scouts. I hate the fact that we're in the championship, soon to be League One, by the way. There was another question on Twitter asking whether we thought, whether the people on this panel thought that we'd be relegated again. Yes, I 100% believe we'll be relegated again because we haven't got anything. Most importantly, we haven't got an owner that cares. But again, I ask you, what do we do as fans? It's not enough for us to sit back, go to pubs, spend our money and complain and whinge every time Sunderland lose. Because the fact of the matter is, there should have been supporters on the Sunderland board for years now. The board needs to be held accountable by the fans. That's the truth. It's simple. It's not because, it's not some power play. It's not because I think that fans can run a football club. It's because the board, the executives that make these decisions, that fuck this club up, They need to be sitting in a room and looking across the table at somebody who's going to say to them, Oi, no, stop fucking doing that. You can't do that to this club. You can't do that to the city. You can't do that to this region. Because this is the truth of it as well, if you're really going to get into it right. Sunderland Football Club isn't just about playing football. A club the size of Sunderland truly affects the whole region. And I've had communications with the club and people at the club who specifically said to me that they support the region with their actions. Now, if you do indeed support the region, how? How can be letting this entire club, this institution, fall into the dirt, support the region? It doesn't support the local businesses who, let's face it, I mean, think about it this way. Do you think you'll be able to attract teams like Celtic in another two years? Do you think that they'll even come anywhere near you? And that's just Celtic, mate. There were 9,000 Glaswegians in Sunderland for that pathetic excuse for a fucking game where we got hammered 5-0 by a fucking mediocre Celtic side, which is pathetic anyway. And it was a whole pathetic celebration. But there were 9,000 Glaswegians there. They all went to pubs. They went to local pubs and they spent money. They went to local restaurants, they spent money. They went to shops and they spent money. If we can't bring these people back, if we can't even attract Glaswegians to Sunderland, what do you think is going to happen to the city? It's a huge revenue generator. That's the truth of it. And right now, all, all of the, the progress that the region has made over the last 10 years, you're going to see it take another downturn because people don't want to be here. I mean, you, it, when you really look at it as well, you've got like an entire generation that don't want to know. You've got an entire generation of kids. We had an article up, right, a while back saying, and the title of it was, Daddy, can we support Arsenal? Right? And it's quite heartbreaking when you think about it because that's the fucking truth. Kids don't want to support Sunderland. Why should they? Why would they want to? And you're not going to drag your fucking kids to games to watch something they don't want to watch while well, they win throughout the entire thing. Now, that is fundamentally the fault of the people who run SAFC. It's not the fault of the people in Sunderland. And it's not even directly the fault of the players, right? Because even though their performances and their attitudes have been quite pathetic, I can't blame them. Because if I had to go into work every day at a place like Sunderland, right, I'd be on fucking just heavy medication. you have to give me sedatives to go there every day and work with that bunch of fucking wankers. To be honest with you, it must be depressing. They'll be on fucking all kinds of Prozac and shit like that. They must be depressed walking in that fucking dress. room. <laughs> You could be, wouldn't you?
0: Tell, tell years, it how you how tell it how you feel, Timon. Yeah, don't don't hold right. back. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, that's the reality, isn't it? It affects everyone. That's the whole point. Sunderland Football Club affects everybody. And when we lose Sunderland Football Club, we aren't just losing a team that play a pathetic game of football. You know, that play this little game, knocking a piece of fucking leather around the pitch. We are we aren't gonna do that. We're we're going to lose something that really means something. And even if you take our emotions out of it, even if you take the sentimentality out of the whole fucking farce, even if you take away from the fact that people like me, people like us, it, it moves us to tears, mate. It upsets me. It upsets me when some, it doesn't upset me that we lose. It doesn't upset me that other teams can mock us. It upsets me that we're broken. It upsets me that we're down on the ground and we're not fighting to get back up. That's what upsets me. It upsets me to see the pride that comes from being a Sunderland fan means nothing. It means nothing anymore. It upsets me to see the atmosphere in the Stadium of Light is flat. That's what upsets me. I couldn't really give a fuck what league we're playing in so long as the fans are happy. No one is happy now. No one's going to be happy with any performance that comes out of Sunderland Football Club until Ellis leaves. He needs to go and we need to put this horrible mess behind us. Sadly, I don't think we're going to do that without going further and further down. That's the tragic thing. Someone said about the mining... um, release the, the the mining image for the kit release um i can't remember who it was now but one of our colleagues said that it's apt in the <laughs> we're actually it, it, it's similar to going into a pit do you know what i mean it's after they're using fucking pictures of miners in oh not miners but actors in mining pits because that's exactly where we're fucking headed it's it'll get worse before it gets better but anyway anyway why should i keep branding <laughs> I'll be here next week. There's more to say. There's always more to say. I mean, obviously we've got more games coming up and there's, there's plenty to play for. We're still very early into the season and it's very, although it's easy to get depressed, who knows this week might be the week that Simon Grayson turns it round with his ragtag bunch of misfits. I can't see it happening personally. Well, unless anyone else has anything to add, thank you for joining us. It's been cathartic. I think some valid points were raised. Don't forget you can subscribe to us on Acast, iTunes. You can check us out on YouTube. Uh, you can always check us out at www.royalreport.com. You can find some fantastic things written by some of these gentlemen and some other lads that we don't really get on the pod. Uh, take care of yourselves for this week. Try not to be too depressed. Try not to throw yourself any bridges. And we'll uh, we'll speak to you next Monday. This is the Royal Report signing off. <laughs>